0: Take out your Bibles and turn with me to the passage that uh, Pastor David read earlier in the service, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 2 through 16. That's the passage we had read this past week. It's the passage that was read earlier in the service. It's the focus of our attention this morning. As a congregation, we've just been making our way through this letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and we've been going through it paragraph by paragraph, page by page, and uh, we're now... Uh, just about well, we're right at the halfway point through our through our letter through this letter and through our study, and um, we're going to see even at the, as we end the service this morning that next week it really takes a change in direction by way of the content of the letter. But uh, this is our passage for us this morning, Second Corinthians seven two through sixteen. Let me have a, a brief word of prayer, and then we'll uh, we'll get into our message for today. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you in prayer, and we acknowledge that you use your word in the lives of your people for your glory and for their, for their good, for their edification, for their instruction, for their correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And so we come before you this morning and, and your word is open now before us and we're gonna read it in just a moment and we're gonna give some time thinking on it and meditating on it. And so we, we pray and come and ask you to take your word and plant it in us and change us and direct us and, and instruct us. Uh, again, for your glory and for our good as a church, and uh, so we pray this, uh, expecting much, knowing that your word is living and active, powerful and effective. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the song goes, "God rest you, merry gentlemen." Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from to save us all from Satan's power. When we were gone astray, O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. That song has been in my head all week long, not just because we had a family Christmas party yesterday, which we did, and it wasn't a 2023 Christmas party, it was a 2024 Christmas party. We're super early. We did have a Christmas party yesterday, but the song was in my head all week long, because as I'm reading through Paul's letter with you, I reached this place in Paul's letter where in just a few paragraphs, Paul makes it very clear that he has been greatly encouraged and immensely happy. He is filled with comfort and joy. If you've read the letter and if you listened to David read it earlier in the service, he uses the word comfort seven times in just a matter of three paragraphs. Seven times. Now, in your Bible, it might be encourage or encouragement, but in the ESV, it's Comfort. So he mentions comfort seven times, and he references his joy and his rejoicing five times. So comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy, over and over and over in just a few paragraphs. And as you read that and you hear it, you go, man, something has changed. Something has changed the atmosphere in Paul's experience with the Corinthian church. Something has happened that is pleasing and encouraging and beneficial in a context where it hasn't always been pleasing, encouraging, and beneficial. What happened? What took place that has Paul so abundantly filled with joy that he literally says in verse 4, I'm overflowing with joy. Well, you know, as we read through the letter, if we were to go back to the beginning and read the entire letter, we, we quickly and easily discover that Paul was writing to the church in Corinth And they had experienced a good bit of trouble. And as a church, they had gone through a good share of difficulty and conflict. And trouble and conflict and difficulty, that that doesn't make anyone encouraged and joyful. So so something's happened. As we read through the letter, we, we learn that Paul had changed his calendar plans. And he made an unscheduled visit to the Corinthian church in order to help them through their conflict and to help them through their problems. He refers to that visit in his letter as a painful visit. And he writes to them and he says, I hope I don't have to make another painful visit to you. After that painful visit, Paul left the region and he continued his ministry elsewhere, but then he heard a report that their conflict wasn't resolved and it was getting worse. And so Paul wrote them what he calls a severe letter a painful visit and a severe letter. And then after that painful visit and severe letter, Paul sent Titus to them as his ambassador, as his emissary, to help them resolve their conflicts. This, this church is in a difficult way. They're having a hard time. They're not getting along, and it's, there's stress there, there's tension there, there's conflict there. How would you like to have been Titus? I can imagine the conversation between Paul and Titus. Paul goes to T- Titus and he says, Titus, you remember that painful visit we had in Corinth several months ago? And Titus going, oh yeah, that was ugly, it was just difficult. Yeah, you remember the report that they weren't doing well and we wrote that severe letter to them? Yeah, I wonder how they're doing. Well, that's just it, Titus. I want you to go back there and find out how they're doing. Oh, yippee! <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a barrel of monkeys there, a lot of fun. You know, who, who wants that assignment? I, I, I can imagine Titus going like, why don't you go? <laughs> me, pick me, you go. So as we read through the letter, we hear about this painful visit. We know that Paul has written them a severe letter. Now there's been another unscheduled visit by a representative, Titus, to help them resolve their conflict. This does not at all sound positive and encouraging. This does not sound like comfort and joy. But something's happened. Something's happened. What happened that changed the, the atmosphere and the situation in the church in Corinth to make it encouraging and joyful and happy? What happened? God happened. Paul's visit and Paul's painful letter, followed up by Titus' visit, it produced something in them. It produced in them a God-intended sorrow, a godly grief, which resulted in repentance, a turning around and going in a new direction. As a result of Paul's visit and as a result of the letter, they they were repentant, they become convicted of their error, the error of their ways, and they were sorry. And more than just being sorry, they became very zealous to turn from their broken path and to do what was right. They weren't just mentally agreeing with Paul, They were actually pursuing a new path of action that was in line with God's desires, a path that would lead to blessing and a path that did lead to blessing. Their repentance produced in them new attitudes and changed behaviors, which turned a very bad situation into a very positive one. And when Paul got that news, he was filled with comfort and joy and pride and confidence and increased affections for them. You know, if we were in that church or if we were in that city and we saw that turnaround, we would say, boy, they really turned a corner. They were a church that were going through a lot of conflict and a lot of difficulty, and there was a great deal of stress and tension there. But but God has done something there, and they've really turned a corner, and that which was becoming disastrous has now be, become a real incredible blessing. You know, before we dive into the text, we learn something from this. We learn something from this letter and from their experience. Sometimes associating with God's people can be very hard and difficult, and conflictual, and painful, and stressful. You ever been there? You ever been there? Paul had been there. The Corinthian church had been there. Not a fun time. Painful visits, severe letters, mediating conflict. You ever ever go through that situation with God's people? Conflict, trouble, it stinks. No one's having fun then, it's not a picnic. But what happens when God intervenes? What happens when God intervenes and God's people repent and return and they do what is right and righteous and they do it together? You see, when God's people turn to him and go his way and go his way together, that's a party. That's a blessing. And the Corinthian church had experienced it and Paul had heard about it and he is filled with comfort and joy. In 3 John, the Apostle John writes, and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that's what happened in Corinth. Paul had instructed the Corinthians with corrections that corresponded with God's Word. And those Corinthians, they listened, and they believed, and in godly repentance, they pursued a right way, and they walked in the truth. And their faith-obedient response to the truth made them a blessing to one another. And a refreshment to Titus, and a real joy to Paul. And in all of it, God is glorified, and Paul is filled with comfort and joy. And so he says it over and over. Let's look into the text. We've had enough introduction. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 2, where David picked up this morning. He says, make room in your hearts for us. This is the second time in Paul's letter he has said this. The conflict in the Corinthian church had caused the Corinthians to be restricted in their affections toward the apostle Paul. Earlier in the letter, he said, hey, open your hearts to us. I came to you, I shared the love of God with you, I shared the gospel with you, I poured my life into you, and you guys are now restricted in your affections toward me. And that teaches us something. Conflict within the church is always personal. It's never impersonal. There's always personalities involved. And Paul knew what that conflict was doing. It was hurting the church and it was hurting their relationship. And he said, man, I've poured out my heart to you, you guys are being... Restricted in your affections toward me. Open your hearts to us. He goes on to say, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For as I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So, so Paul has no interest in throwing the Corinthians under the bus. He, he loves them. He's told them before in his letter of his abundant love for them. Here he says, you're in my heart. He sounds like Phil Collins. You'll be in my heart. <laughs> but he's using marriage-like language. He's like, for better, for worse, till death do us part, and life and death, we're in this together. He goes on to say, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. What's provided the comfort and joy? He says in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul knows a good deal about persecution. He also knows a good deal about internal anxiety. He is concerned for the church in Corinth. And he had an open door for ministry in Ephesus and and, and Western Asia. He had an open door for evangelism, but he left there because he had no rest in his heart. He's going into Macedonia because he's looking for Titus because he wants to hear the report that's coming out of Corinth. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, here's where it changes, right here. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, who had been sent to Corinth. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you when he got there. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, my severe letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, a God-intended sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces something. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, what resolves for justice. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, the offender, nor for the one. "'sake of the one who suffered the wrong, me, "'but in order that your earnestness for us "'might be revealed to you in the sight of God. "'Therefore we are comforted. "'And besides our own comfort, "'we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, "'because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. "'For whatever boast I made to him about you, "'I was not put to shame. "'But just as everything we said to you is true, "'so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, "'and his affection for you has gone through the roof.' It is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So you read this over and over, comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Boy, something's really happened in the Corinthian church. The the church that was painful to visit, the church that was receiving severe letters and and follow-ups to resolve the conflict, something's happened there. Well, God happened there. Paul wrote them a letter. And Paul made a, a visit. A, a, and God produced something in them, a repentance. And they turned around, and they've now gone the right way. And that is revealed in the fact that they have been refreshed personally, and they become refreshing to Titus, who has now given Paul great joy. Things have changed there. And it's something that God has produced. This wasn't man-made it wasn't man manufactured. No, God, God's done something there. You know, in this context, we read of all this uh, comfort and joy, but we also read about godly grief and worldly sorrow. Godly grief and what the text calls worldly grief. In verse 10 it says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief comes with no repentance, and it produces death. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. What a contrast. That's really stark. Uh, uh, Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief actually turns things around. And and, and it goes in the right way. And it is accompanied by God-empowered actions to do what is right. That's important to know. Godly grief produces repentance and it it is... accompanied by God-empowered actions to do what is right. Worldly grief, it's just sorry. It's bummed that wrong has been done. It acknowledges that wrong has been done, and it's sorry that it's happened and it's bummed, but it's not accompanied by change of behavior. There's no repentance. There's no change of direction. And the end thereof is death. Well, what does repentance look like? You know, all he says about worldly grief is it ends in death because there's no repentance there, there's no changing, there's no direction difference, it just ends in death. But when he talks about godly grief and repentance, he gives us quite a, quite a list of what repentance looks like. What does repentance look like? He says it looks like salvation without regret. Now, this salvation isn't salvation from Satan unto God. It's not from sin under righteousness. This salvation in the context is saved relationships. God produced sorrow produces God-empowered actions of righteousness, and in that context, relationships are restored. Relationships are saved. They're put right, and reconciliation happens. No one is bummed when the church goes down that path. There's no regret in going God's way, and so repentance looks like salvation without regret. uh, Repentance looks like earnestness to clear yourself. A a a God-produced sorrow comes with God-given desires to come clean, to confess the wrong, to separate it, and to be in the clear, no longer associated with that which was disastrous. Repentance also looks like indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment, or the pursuit of justice. Repentance comes with anger toward the wrong that was committed, an indignation. It's not just like, oh, that's a bummer. I'm so sad that happened. No, it's it's an indignation. It also comes with the acknowledgement that the sin that was committed was actually against God before it was against anyone else. The fear of the Lord is involved. It's God whom I have sinned against. It comes with a longing to make things right, to set things straight, for justice to be pursued with real commitment. In, in repentance, punishment is not avoided, nor is it unheeded. The attitude of godly repentance is whatever it takes to make things right This is what repentance wants to do. What does repentance look like? The last thing he says is it looks like proven innocence. The right path isn't just mentally agreed upon, it's actually pursued and acted upon. The right way is put into practice. And this is the important thing, you need to hear this. This is something that God produces. This is something that God does. And God does it with his word, and God does it by his spirit, and God does it within his people. So here's a really big deal. When the opportunity, when the opportunity to repent comes along, don't let it pass you by. Well because you might not get the opportunity again. And I'm not talking like, hey, if you don't repent, you might die. No, no, no. Remember Esau? Esau sold his birthright, then sold his blessing. Then when he wanted it back and he repented with tears, the opportunity to repent had passed him by. So when God produces a repentance, a godly sorrow for sin, that comes with God-empowered actions to do what is right, and you let that go, you put yourself in a really bad way. But when God through his word and by his spirit, comes along and convicts you of what is wrong and shows you the way that you ought to go and gives you the power to do it and you act upon it, oh, that's a party. People are blessed. People are refreshed. What was a disaster situation becomes a very positive one so that Paul is saying here, man, I'm overflowing with joy. I could not be happier. I'm filled with comfort and joy. That's what's happening here. Well, while this godly grief and worldly grief is certainly a part of this context, uh, the the, the bigger lesson of this is Paul is communicating to the Corinthians his encouragement and his joy that their repentance and their obedience has brought him. Paul is overflowing with joy to their response to what is right and their commitment to seeing it done. You stand back from these paragraphs and you see that Paul was comforted by God through the coming of Titus. And Titus was comforted by God by the obedience of the Corinthians. And the obedience of the Corinthians provided Paul real joy and Paul shared his joy that he has in them with them in his letter. And so this comfort becomes multifaceted and multidirectional and multilayered and God is the source of it all. And these people are happy. The, the Corinthians' obedience was a source of joy and refreshment not only to themselves, but to Titus and to Paul, who in turn became refreshing to them And it just keeps flowing back and forth. So all of this comfort and joy and this increased affection, it's really evidence that God is working among them. Because God is the one who comforts the downcast. God is the one who produces a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And God is the one who refreshes the lives of his people through the faith obedience of his people. So, as I'm thinking through these paragraphs with you, here's where I actually landed. This is what I think is the main message of these paragraphs. Here it is God's comfort and joy for his people comes through his people who are committed to pursuing him and pursuing his ways. Think that through. God's comfort and joy for his people comes through his people who are committed to pursuing him and his ways. That means for the church, that means for the Christian community. Comfort and joy is a community project. It happens together. It won't happen in isolation. God hasn't designed it that way. So even when you and I pull out our Bibles in the morning and we spend some time with God in reading his word and in prayer and we receive great comfort and joy and encouragement from that, even that comfort and joy is meant to be shared. God's comfort and joy for his people comes through his people who are committed to pursuing him and pursuing his ways. You stand back from this passage and you see it. God comforted Paul. How did God comfort Paul? Through Titus. God comforted Titus. How did God comfort Titus? By the Corinthians. How were the Corinthians comforted? By God, through Paul giving them instruction and correction. And it just keeps going back and forth. God produced repentance of the Corinthians. It benefited not only themselves, but it was a real refreshment to Titus who then became a real joy for Paul. And in all of it, the encouragement and the comfort and the joy and the increased affection, it just keeps going on and on and on. They've really turned a corner. So I'm reading this paragraph with you. Comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy. What a blessing. God turned things around in Corinth. Praise God. Because it was a pretty messed up situation. It was a pretty messed up situation there. This past week, I had uh, had dinner with a couple, a dinner, uh, dinner with a couple who've uh, actually been involved in this church and been members of this church longer than I've been alive. Some of you are thinking they're really old. They're, they're not. They've just been here longer than I've been alive. They, they, they've been members of this church. And, and through the years, if you want to talk to them, they, they've, they've been through some things with this church. They've, they've been through some things. They've been, they've been involved in this church for, what, six decades? They, they, they have seen their share of tensions And hardships and trials and difficulties and disappointments, they've seen setbacks, they've seen splits. What would you expect from people who are being made perfect? What would you expect from people who are bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God? Because holiness isn't complete, and we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what would you expect so, so you meet with this couple and you talk with them and they've been here for six days. They, they, they've seen all sorts of challenges and trials and setbacks and difficulties. But you share with them and you come to understand that those trials and challenges and difficulties, it doesn't compare with the comfort and joy they've received from this same community. It doesn't compare. Because here is a community that is committed to pursuing God and pursuing His ways. And so just like the future glory for those who are in Christ doesn't compare with the present trials, the present trials don't compare with the present comfort and joy that God gives. Didn't we learn that in chapter 1? Isn't that where the letter began? Suffering and trials come into the lives of those who follow Jesus Christ. We're not surprised by that. And some of the suffering and trials that come into the lives of those who follow Jesus come from other Jesus followers. Undoubtedly, the people who've hurt me the worst have been other believers. (laughs) That's how that happens when you do life together as Christians. So we learn from chapter 1, suffering and trials comes into the lives of those who follow Jesus, and along with those suffering and trials comes what? God's comfort and strength. Why? Because God comforts the downcast. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And He comforts us with more comfort than we need so that we might share His comfort with others. And even when we're stressed and burdened beyond our strength, we learn something. We learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead and He delivers us. And we help one another with our mutual comfort and our mutual God-dependent prayers. Isn't that the, isn't that the message of chapter 1? It is. So we learn here in... Our passage, middle of the letter, chapter seven, God's comfort and joy for his people, it comes through his people. It comes through his people who are committed to pursuing him and his ways. Now set that in the context of where we were last week. Because it's the same context. You don't want to be yoked with unbelievers. They're not going the same way you're going. You get yoked with unbelievers, and it's going to be disastrous. It's going to be more frustrating than you want it to be. The message from last week was, believers are greatly helped, not when they're yoked with unbelievers, but when they're in partnership with other believers who are working with God and bringing holiness to completion. Yeah. That all fits together. That all fits together. As believers, don't get yoked with unbelievers who are not going the same way you are. You know, be friendly to them. Be gracious, be kind, be thoughtful, reach out to them, show them the love of Christ, but don't be joined in partnership with them. They're not going the way you are. Join in with God's people who are going God's way because through them, you'll experience God's comfort and joy. Who doesn't want to sign up for comfort and joy? Because the comfort and joy God gives to his people through his people, it far exceeds the stress you'll experience. you you believe that or not? Because that's what we read in this letter. We see both experiences in Paul's life and in the Corinthian church, and it's in this letter, and man, Paul is now filled with joy because God has deeply comforted him through the Corinthians' repentance and obedience. Well, now, look at the the last sentence of the chapter. He says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And at that point, that confidence spills over into a whole new category. He's now going to encourage them in confidence to share in a giving project toward a church in Jerusalem that's really hurting. And he wants the Corinthians to join in with the Macedonian churches to be involved in that. And so we're going to see a really change in direction in Paul's letter out of all this comfort and joy and confidence. And we'll go there next week. Matter of fact, next week's... Paragraphs. If you want to read it in advance, look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. That's where we're going next Sunday morning. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, this very personal letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We're thankful that it was preserved, that it was preserved for our benefit, that it was written down, that it was copied, that we have a copy of it today. We have so much to learn of you and so much to learn from our experiences with one another as your people. Father, we thank you that you supply us all that we need for life and godliness through your great and precious promises. We want to be a people whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, who are continually learning from your word. Father, we we thank you that through trials and challenges and stresses, you grow us, you deepen us, you grow us in faith. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies, and you comfort your people through your people. Father, I pray that uh, for this church, we might continue to be humble, that we might continue to learn of your word, that we might continue to walk forward in unity and to be gracious and kind to one another as we go through a variety of situations that you provide us. In all things, you will be glorified and through your people, you will be greatly honored. We pray that that would be true of us. Bless now our continued fellowship with one another before we go from here. Pray that we might uh, enrich one another's lives as we just share the gifts that you've given us to one another today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.